Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is just an incredible, incredible treat. Uh, he is uh, an actor, a musician, a renaissance man. Uh, we first came to know and love him in his iconic role in the 1980 classic, The Blues Brothers, where he plays himself, uh, Murphy Dunn, keyboard and Murph in the Magic Tones in the Armada Room at the Holiday Inn. Uh, he is a joyful person, and I can't thank you enough for doing this, so a heartfelt welcome to you, Mr. Murphy Dunn. Oh, man, thanks so much. Glad to be here. And it's a thrill to know that you just talked to Blue Lou Marini. That's great. I did, I did. Actually, we've been very lucky. We had Steve Cropper on a couple years ago, and Willie Too Big Hall, and now Blue Lou you, and, you, and you, know, Murphy. You know, oh, well, I'm a good company. Uh, do you know how he got the nickname Too Big? I don't know that. <laughs> this is great. He, uh, when he was a younger man in, in the South, there, you can cut any of this out. But there, there were brothels in the South. And uh, the madam, for some reason, checked him out before, you know, he would go in with... Uh, one of the uh, night workers. And uh, she checked him out. He dropped his drawers and she said, you're too big. That is a story. We will not cut that, Murph. We will keep that in. Oh, you will? Okay, I don't know what- Of course, no, it's a, this is a, and anything goes here on great. We don't usually go in that direction, but uh, anything goes here. That's a great story. And when I, and the guys in the band knew it. And then uh, when I was, doing when I was doing that I had to introduce the band and I said Steve the Colonel Cropper Donald Duck Dunn and Willie too big and I when I put that in there John and Dan knew that it was being recorded and John Landis I didn't think knew what it was for but I think it's it's a fun little story and it's and it made the cut in the movie Fantastic. So Murph, so many places to, to start with you, but I thought we might go back to your days as a precinct captain of the 42nd Ward uh, on Rush Street and talk about those early Chicago roots. And I know that was a big part of your indoctrination, if you will, into the music world. Yeah, well, uh, I, w I was a, uh, my dad was a rather successful politician. He ran Cook County for a couple of decades. And I was a precinct captain, so I rang doorbells uh, to get people out. You know, we were Democrats and uh, tried to get people to come out and vote. And, and Rush Street, uh, we were kind of in the business of selling insurance to taverns. So there were taverns all around. And as a matter of fact, across the street from where we lived was uh, two strip clubs. <laughs> so this isn't the usual uh, setting for uh a childhood was the Club 19 All-Girl Review and the Grecian Queen. Very, very terrific. You didn't see a lot of priests in there, although there was a church a couple blocks away. But it, it was fun. And there were a lot of bars. And in the bars, 
they would you, you could go in and, and play the organ or uh, or the piano it would like with like a pickup band and and i started doing that and then i eventually went from from that and i became a lifeguard and after that i someone said you should go to second city and check them out and i i liked it i see girls in there which is a good thing uh because I went to an all boys school and this is like, whoa, girls, this is something different. And at one time I was thinking of becoming a priest and that changed completely. And uh, so I started taking, uh, sat in with the classes, improv classes. And one of the guys who's in the uh, touring company said, hey, listen, you play piano. Why don't you do the ins and outs and play piano for the touring company? We'll get you free classes. I said, yay. Terrific. So I started playing the piano and uh, on one of our uh, gigs in, in Champaign-Urbana, uh, the director said, uh, go run the, the lines. And he handed me a script. Go run the lines with him. And I said, I don't need a script. And he said, you know the lines? I said, yeah, I've been doing this for a while. He said, run it with him, with me. And I, I, I ran it and he said, you'll go on tonight. So, so that's how I kind of got on into Second City, and I was a big blues fan. And when I met John Belushi, we had a lot of fun to, together, you know, just improvising between us. And he did uh, Joe Cocker, I did Joe Cocker. So, we, he, he, if you, if you made John Belushi laugh, you owned him. That's the kind of guy he was. He'd walk down the street, and people say, "Hey." Hey, it's John Belushi. Can't let me have an autograph. And he'd say, "Shrug, if you know, why don't we go in here and have a beer?" And he'd take you in, inside a bar, and you'd sit. And he says, "So this is your girlfriend. Where did you go to school?" It was he was very affable, very uh, accessible, and and once you got him uh, talking, you know, he would he would laugh, make you laugh. Yeah, it's a wonderful guy. Anyway, so I got into Second City at a time when. They were kind of moving out older members of the cast. And I don't know if you, well, I, I wanted to, to, to switch over to, I before I forget, I, I saw where you spoke to Bob Costas. Yes. And I was going to mention a story that kind of involves a guy named Dick Butkus. Sure. 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 He's, he was a friend of mine for, since the sixties. So uh, Dick was working, uh, at, at a lot of different functions to raise money for kids who had spinal cord injuries. And uh, so we were in Kansas City attending one of these functions and Dick for laughs had carried this little thing out that made a fart sound. So we would be in the airport and, he'd go, and people would turn around and, and Dick would look at me as if it was me farting. And, and it was hugely embarrassing. Hugely embarrassing. I'll get, I'll get to the uh, Bob Costas part. We're, we're sitting at this large table and I see that Bob Costas is coming over. And and uh, I figured he knew Dick and I'm right, right next next to Dick. And Bob Costas, excuse me, Dick, uh, I'm uh, Bob Costas. And he hands his hand over and Dick says, who the fuck are you? And Bob goes, <laughs> He said, I'm kidding, Bob. And he shook his hand. It was, I mean, of course, all the blood oh, drained. That's from great. Bob's face. That's fantastic. Dick was a very 
very funny guy in the, but when at the airport coming back uh, the plane was delayed and I noticed this guy with a hairpiece and it looked like a coonskin hat you know it it just looked it was you had the skull here and what what I said to Dick was you know that why doesn't somebody tell that that guy, how about a member of his family saying, you know, it's popular now. Shave your head. Everybody's doing it. You know, this this is great. And Dick says, why don't you go tell him? I said, nah, no. It should be somebody who knows it. He said, no, no, Murph, go on over and tell him. Now I see where this is going, which isn't good. And we get on the plane, and I turn around. There's the guy with the hairpiece, not far behind me. We go sit down, and, and Dick goes, hey. There's your buddy hairpiece, Murph. He's coming back here. I go, no, no, don't do this to me. Don't do this to me. He sits next to me. Oh, God. And then Dick takes off. He goes, hairpiece, hairpiece, Murph. Hey, your buddy. And he starts ribbing me, you know, big elbows. Hairpiece, your buddy, your buddy. I said, please, merciful God, please, please. He did it for 15 minutes. And he, he was just a very funny guy. It was very funny. Guy. What what great story! I love that. But, but let me. I, I interrupted you and in your train. There's no there's no interrupting here. So so you, you, second city you join in '68, and uh, and then in '69, Murph. I read that you co-produced a great free blues festival at Grand Park with yes. some pretty big names, including Willie Dixon. Willie Dixon. Uh, I had friends who worked at Chess Records. And one of them su suggested, uh, well, the wife of somebody who worked at Chess Records said to me, you know, sh Chicago has never done anything to honor uh, a musical form that it owns. It's the blues. This is Chicago. And I said, you're absolutely right. We, we, we didn't, nothing had been done. So I went downtown and because I, I, my dad was in politics. So I knew people, you know, from elections and things like that. And I spoke to the assistant mayor and I said, you know, we've got to do something to honor the blues in Chicago because this, this is its home and, and we should do that. He said, that's a good idea. I said, I know Willie Dixon and I think he could put together all of the talent, you know, Muddy Waters, Bo Diddley, Buddy Guy and Junior Wells. And, and he said, yeah, and I got the city to pay him. I had a gig selling insurance. I didn't need the money, but and it felt like I could give something. So uh, we arranged it, and I got all the equipment donated, a couple of drum sets, and uh, and it was a great day. It was a great Big Mama Thornton and Muddy Waters finished it with uh, Mojo and Big Mama Thornton said, "Can I?" I'll, I'll sing that. I'll sing that with Muddy at the end. I said, oh, great, great. And she did. And it was a funny thing because the previous year was 68 in Grand Park, which was a, a terrible situation, you know, and terrible for the, for the families that they had police. You know, your dad could be a cop and you could be opposed to the Vietnam War. And you're throwing things at each other. It was a terrible thing. But so the city, it, it was ripe for turning it around and and making it a, a, a good thing. And, and the city was concerned about, about any violence or anything. 
So they had uh, about 20 cops in the backstage area. So when uh, Muddy finished his uh, mojo, everybody was very happy and happy. And the police on their own came out on the stage as if something was going to happen. And uh, nothing happened. And Muddy and the band are looking at the cops like, what's going on here? And Muddy's like, well, I'll do an encore. And he did an encore and, and the cops are stuck out there because they made it and they're tapping their feet and, and kind of dancing. It was it was a great time. It was a great oh, time. Yeah, especially a, a big, big uh, juxtaposition, as you said, after the troubles in 68 in Chicago. <laughs> Can we talk about a little bit? It's uh, I didn't know we were going to go here, Murph, but while you mentioned Chess Records and Willie Dixon, such a seminal figure, uh, I guess that might have been the first time you met your future Blues Brothers bandmate, Steve Cropper, at that gig. Uh, but I'd love to talk more about Chess and more about that era because you really know quite a bit about it. it. It was it was wonderful. There were a lot of clubs on the north side. I didn't go to the south side blues clubs, but I, I would go jazz clubs on the south side i could see miles davis and, and all all the great saxophonists that were on the time bobby timmons and then he, and, and the um and on the north side there were there were clubs right near second city mother blues and uh, the plug nickel and, and you could go into the clubs and see them and it was garnering a lot of uh white fans and and, and which which is terrific because the music was so great. And uh, you, you could go and, and see anybody, Holland Wolf. And it, it was a, an astounding period of time. And there wasn't a lot of uh, any problems on Wells Street at that time. It, 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 was, it was great fun. But the following year, after the first Free Blues Festival, I convinced uh, the city to do more varieties. So the next year, we did the first free rhythm and blues. And this is the first free, that was the first free blues festival in the world, which is it's kind of a big thing. Uh, and so the second year we brought back the first free rhythm and blues festival and Booker T and the MGs was on that bill. So that's why I met Cropper and, and Dunn. And I got a chance to see uh, one of the great band and, Booker T, and it, it's just a, the greatest rhythm section in the world, I think, historically. So I got a chance to meet them, and, and when I came in to, to do the Blues Brothers, I, I had a good time with Steve Cropper and Duck, because they realized I was that guy who was the producer. He said, that was you, that was you. I said, yeah. And, and Cropper said, I heard that I was in a movie called The Big Bus, and in The Big Bus, at Paramount Pictures, they they had me write uh, some comedy music to, to be on the, the on the bus. So one of them, uh, one of the tunes was Six Months to Live." Obviously, a comedy piece. Six months to live, so forget about Christmas. So so there was comedy stuff, and Cropper had loved that. And she said, oh, I can't believe it was you. I said, yeah, it was me. We had a great time, Cropper and, and Dunn and the rest of that band. It, it was a time. It was a, a great time. And doing it on, uh, doing it Universal 
and in Chicago, my home. I mean, I couldn't have asked for a, a better time, a greater time. And, and, and I read somewhere, Murph, that your dad, George, who, as you said, was a big wheel in Cook County, that those scenes that were filmed in the prison, that somehow he helped gain permission for that, for John Landis and for the movie itself. John Landis had, uh, had his own connections. But I think that my dad was the president of the Cook County Board of Commissioners. So they had to get permission from him uh, to shoot inside the county building. And for some reason, my dad said that it'd be okay. And he knew you were in the movie or did not yet know well, that? Sure, he did. He did. He yeah. Did I yeah. love that. He, he love knew it. I was in the movie. And he kind of knew all about the band. That, that might have been, been the some reason. So if you mentioned Belushi in Second City. Go back to your first meeting with John. Do you remember that? John, John told me that I met him once before. I really remembered it was after a show and I was walking out. And then I saw him perform on a mon Monday night. Yeah, on a Monday night, and I went crazy. I ran backstage and I said, man, have you got a career ahead of you? You're the best I've seen on this stage in, in years. It's probably the best in, in, in many years that I'd seen. So uh, we became fast friends and he knew obviously the blues were involved in my life. And, and John was, and when he would come out to California before all that started, uh, we'd hang out. And he had this thing, he and Chevy Chase used to do this. John, I didn't think he slept much. And during the, uh, uh, I, I'd be asleep at like two in the morning and there'd be a knock on the front door. And my girlfriend said, who is that? I don't know, but I went out there and that'd be John and Chevy Chase. And I, and I had a jukebox in one of my rooms and we would spend hours just playing. Gratefully, my girlfriend slept like a log and it wasn't a problem, but he would do that, you know, and he would do that to a lot of friends. Two or three in the morning, he'd come by and, hey, come on in. <laughs> he'd bring whoever he was with inside. And it was fun. It was, it was great fun. Uh, amazing stuff. And, and Second City, really incredible farm system of talent. It, it was great. I, and, you know, there's, there's some, something about people who are kind of eccentric. Uh, there's a line in Biloxi Blues. Uh, Neil Simon had this line. One must never underestimate the stimulation of eccentricity. And people at Second City were eccentrics. They were crazy. They were wild. They were full of life. And it, it, was, it was a great experience for me. There, there was some and I got it. I was in a company with Peter Boyle. I don't know if you know who Peter Boyle. Of course, sure, of course. Well, a lot of people don't. You know, yeah, I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm a, you know, any anybody under fifty, probably. I don't know, but I talk to people. Peter Boyle. They say, "Who was your company?" I said, "Oh, Peter Boyle." And then I would go, "Well, in the company behind me, there was Harold Ramis and Brian Doyle Murray and a guy named John Belushi, and and the oh, you know, I've heard him." You know? Right, right. No. And then we go through it. But it, it it was a fun thing. And also there was a piano player at Second City. His name was Fred Kaz. And he was very, very he was an old bebop. 
he was represented, uh, he had a manager. His manager managed uh, my, I can't remember, uh, female folk singer. But an, he also managed a guy named Bob Dylan. Okay. So you might have heard him. And, and that was the level of piano player. And he'd recommended Garth Hudson to the band. And then, so that, there's a big connection in, in quality there. And there's this sort of confluence of of things that happen in Second City between comedy and music. And we touched on the blues and we're going to stay there for a while. But I think people didn't really understand or appreciate that the Blues Brothers band was a very serious band of musicians and, and all tremendous players. I know you came in when Paul Schaefer couldn't do the movie because of a contractual obligation, but you were very much part of the fabric of the band. That was a great, great group of players. That, that's the biggest understatement anybody could make about that band. And they were just astounding. If you take in consideration, Duck and Steve were in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, Lou, Lou Marini played all over the world. And he still does. I saw him at the Hollywood Bowl with uh, Barbara Streisand. But also you take in consideration uh, Alan Rubin, Mr. Fabulous, first chair Juilliard. That, that I can't even show you the bar. And, 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 Blue, and Bones Malone had a, had a career, you know, with Blue, I think it was Blood, Sweat and Tears. They, they played with all sorts of guys and all sorts of bands. And, and obviously we're together on SNL. Which which was which was great there, but they're mostly they're studio cats. You know, there were studio cats around town, and when anybody big came to town, so they they were locked in. There was I'll tell you this little story. Um, I one of the things I did in out here is a thing called automatic dialogue revoicing. So I did a lot. Of, You're despicable. Well, after the wab, I would do voiceovers and some cartoon voices. And there was this young director had started out, uh, and I was in a in a in a group that did voices. See, in a scene, you could be in a scene and watch the principal actors, but all those people in the background, they can't talk. They can't talk because it'll impact the the audio recording. So. In, in the movie, the first movie I remember doing was Jaws. And uh, an unknown director named Steven Spielberg was, was the director. And, and he's prompting the people in this group for the screams and, and anything like it, or the people who walk by who are visiting the beach in the back background behind Roy Scheider. So he, Steven Spielberg says, uh, said to the company, uh, does anybody do uh, any impressions of, of people who would be on the radio? And some people said they did it and they kind of auditioned for him. And Spielberg's leaving the studio. And I said, Stephen, let me ask you a question. Uh, I, I do an impression of Janice Joplin. He said, no, you don't. I said, yes, I do. And he said, do it. And we're outside. Now, sound stages, they don't want a lot of noise outside. And it was really a loud impression. 
you know, you know, it was really, really loud. And he said to me, John Williams, tomorrow morning, nine o'clock, soundstage one. And I'm going, oh my God, this, <laughs> John Williams is just, yeah, how high can you get? So he was doing a score and uh, I I came into the, uh, in the little room, the control room, and and it's a big, huge stage, and and I was right by the speakers, you know, they had to be clip shorns, you know, that the kind that you have in movie theaters, you know, behind the screen, and they and they were so loud, and I opened the door, and it was right here, and I could hear dun dun, dun 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 dun, he's doing you know all the big string part and the jaws, see, and I'm going, oh my god, this is. This is amazing. And I I looked through the glass double panel and there was the LA Philharmonic. The, the musical section was 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 finished and he said to the orchestra, he said, okay, everybody take 10. Murphy's gonna come in and sing. And I sunk a little further, my heart was palpitation. And uh, so I go inside and he says, Hi, I, I'm John Williams. I said, Hi, Murphy, Murphy Dunn. And he's, he said, well, how, how does this thing go? And I, I go over the piano and, and I, I do a little Jerry Lee Lewis. And, and, and then I said, and then I go, couldn't you make me feel? I made up some, some lyrics and it was better than that. And uh, he said, great. And he turned to the piano player and he said, uh, can you play that? And the pianist said, oh, I can approximate that. And two takes later, I'm finished. The sad part is they never used it in the movie, which would have been, you know, I would be living in a much better house if that was the case. But it was the best Hollywood experience I think I ever had. And, and you had a lot of Hollywood experiences, Murph. You were in High Anxiety. You were in Oh God. Can we reflect reflect on some of those those great parts of your of career? Well, here here's uh, the High Anxiety part. I'm there's a a, uh, a guy, a famous actor out here named Jack Riley, and he played a little piano. He was friends with Mel, uh, uh, and uh, I walk by this door at uh, 20th Century Fox. I think it was. Yeah, and I walk by this door. I knew it was upstairs at Brooks Films, and I, I walk by and I look. I, I I look in, and it's and it's Mel. Mel, he goes, "Get in here, get in here. You're Murphy Dunn." I said, "Yeah, I am." He said, "Mel Brooks." I'd known him from before. Actually, it was in one of his movies, but it was a small part, small kind of a, it was a silent movie. So he said, "Get in here, sit there, sit there on the divan, the the sectional, the the couch, right there." Yeah, good. Now Johnny Morris and I, he was famous composer John Morris, wrote this song, and John Morris played uh, the piano, but I I need someone who can fake it perfectly. And I said, well, tell me what the situation is. He said, we're in a piano bar and Madeline Kahn points over here. Madeline Kahn is over there. And you you convinced me to get up and, and sing a song. Excuse me. So 
I'm, I'm sitting on the couch. And he said, okay, go. And I say, hey, Doc, he's played a doctor. Hey, Doc, why don't, why don't you get up and sing a song or two? What do you say? He said, oh, no, I can't do that. And everybody else joins in. So we, he said, how about high anxiety, as if everybody knows the song? I said, sure, my, as I recall. And he goes, high anxiety. And I go like this. He said, you got the job. You got the job. You knew just where the arpeggio went. And I'd never heard the song, but I just figured that that was it. He said, you got the job. Now, you leave your sizes and get out of here. I said, no, no. No, I got something else. And he said, well, what's that? I said, keep singing. I, I, there's something else I can put in. He said, it's useless to say. And I look over to the people who are over at Madeline Kahn. I said, who is this guy? He's better than Sinatra. I've never heard of anything like he, Mel goes, funny, funny, funny. But it's not your scene. It's mine. Now get out of here. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it was great. Fantastic stuff. So let's talk more about that incredible, incredible scene that, you know, it's 43 some odd years ago, but uh, new audiences still discovering the Blues Brothers movie today. Uh, go back to that scene in the Armada room uh, when John and Danny walk in and, you're on stage with the band, with the Magic Tones, with Willie. Now we know the origin of Too Big Hall, Tom Bones Malone, Steve Cropper, and Duck Dunn. Right. Well, it, <laughs> these were the cheesiest suits we were wearing. I, I don't know where, where they got them. And uh, I, I play cheesy piano players and singers a lot. That's how I started, kind of. And uh, so... Uh, the front of the piano is shag carpeting. It, it was declassed. It's the lowest you could you could get. And all the guys when they're playing, it's like 10 hours they've been playing. So they're they're like this. And and uh gratefully Steve was sitting on a chair. And it takes a while to to shoot a scene. You know, there's a different different people. So we 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 sing it and uh and then i make a, a, an announcement that it's uh to come back for the disco disco discos I, and then i introduce the band I just introduce the band steve cropper uh, uh duck dunn uh, willie too big hole and i'm murph and there's tom bones below and then i because i turn on uh turn on uh don't go changing, which is coming up next. And, and I said, we'll be right back with the Armada room with the uh, disco party time. Till then, don't don't go changing. And I squunch my nose like I'm flirting with them. And and at that time is when John and Danny come in and and they they begin the scene, which is you guys look at you. Look at those monkey suits. What can you do? And and Willie, who is very good in, in his his scene, because look at you, you you owe us money for he was he was very aggressive, and and he was you owe us money and you went in the joint and then you you did that, and he stole the scene as far as I was concerned because he was so angry at them, yeah for for not paying us 
you know, are are due. And uh, it, that part was a great scene because it was John and Dan kind of meeting up with us. And and then, of course, it was Mr. Fabulous and Blue Lou and Matt Murphy, God rest his soul. Uh, so, so anyway, that, that was the scene. It was, there were two waitresses and I think there were three people in this large, large room. And it was easy for them to, at the end of the song, it was not like we had a crowd, but it, it was it was very funny. And looking at looking out at John and Danny, we're looking at us like, what kind of piece of video shit is this? And which is a little, supposed to be embarrassing for us, obviously. And and we obviously saw them. It it was a great scene to do with them. It was it it wasn't a lot of takes. Yeah. But it it was fun. And did you ever imagine then reflecting on it that it would have, you know, God knows how many movies are made. Yeah, but I mean that's you're really part of culture all these years later. Yeah, it's it's an iconic film, and it and it's it, I re, I remember that Siskel and Ebert gave it a, a not so good review, and then they changed their mind. That's what I had heard, and it's ranked as one of the best musicals around because it is. I mean, they, they took all those songs from Stax and Aretha, her song, song the Memphis song. Oh, God, it was, it was killer. And, and as an old aficionado of the Chicago blues, that must have been something. You got to work with John Lee Hooker and uh, Bigger Than Blues, but another iconic artist in Ray Charles. I mean, they oh, really God. paid homage to just some of the Aretha, Aretha yeah, Franklin, of course. Know. It, it honored them and, and honored the music, which was, it was at the right place at the right time. It was, you know, not, not a lot of people think about it, but Dan Aykroyd wrote that. That, you know, he, he's a brilliant guy. He, he truly is. And, and I think Blues Brothers 2000 w was a terrific film too. It was a different time. It, it was more sedate. It was, and, they didn't have the backlog of uh, Saturday Night Live uh, audience to to garner them, but I think both movies had had that, mm -hmm. and they're they're it, it was an homage. It was a, an homage to that music, yeah. and I think it's one of the best musicals ever made. And you and all the mus all the mus musicians are real fraternity over the years. Uh, yeah, and and. I don't know if Blue Lou told you, but uh, there is another uh, another band, the the original Blues Brothers band, goes goes under his baton uh, prior to COVID about five years, and they asked me to join. I, so I've been through Europe and Australia and uh, Norway, and thank you, God. Thank Ama you, God. Amazing, and I guess we lost Matt Guitar Murphy. Uh, is everybody else still, everybody else done duck past in Tokyo a few years ago? Uh, is there anybody, everybody else is still around? Everybody else, Willie's still around. He, he isn't in, in this band, but he's still around. How was he? I haven't talked to him in years. He's in Memphis. I think he struggles a little bit. I think Danny helps him out uh, financially a little bit. My <laughs> sense was that, um, he struggles a bit. Um, Cropper's still in great shape. I spoke to him. I know it's, you know, obviously a tragic loss losing uh, Duck Dunn. Um, 
And, uh, of course, McIntyre Murphy we lost. Well, it was uh, cast in heaven. Yeah. It really was to, to play with those guys and, and the fun. They refer, musicians refer to, to it as the hang. I'm in it for the hang. And, and we had our own trailer. And, and, and I still have liver damage. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Well, priceless, incredible stories. You are the consummate storyteller. I love that. I I have one more story. Uh, Let's hear it. Come on. As as you you, slide backwards. In, uh, I wanted to tell you this about, I was in Remington Steel. That's, you know, Pierce. Sure, sure. So uh, I'm in it. Pierce Brosnan and I are back. We're in Vegas. We're in an alley. It's a night shoot. It's about three in the morning. Not, not my favorite time. And they're setting up the, the shot. And whoever was in charge of security wasn't doing a good job. So this bum come, comes in. And you have to understand, to set up the scene, it, it's in, kind of in two parts, the story. You look at Pierce Brosnan, and Pierce Brosnan is is like a hood ornament. He's gorgeous and perfect complexion. The suits are tailored to within a nano of a stitch. He's tall. You know, I, I don't want to have my picture taken next. He looks gorgeous. He he just looks gorgeous, and he's standing there, and I'm standing there, and the bum comes up to us, obviously drunk. Either. What the fuck are you guys doing here? And I said, this is Pierce Brosnan, Murphy Dunn. We're acting in a, a show called uh, Remington Steel. And they're shooting the cameras, that's it. And he looks up at us and he said, just two more fucking losers in Vegas, man. <laughs> and I said to Pierce, I said, now, as, as your career ascends into the firmament of acting greatness, Remember this guy. Remember this guy. So coincidentally, a week later, I'm in uh, the motion picture hospital when it was in Woodland Hills and going in for my checkup. And they say, all the rooms are taken. Uh, It's all right with you. You go into the gynecological room. There's nothing wrong with it. You're not going to be examined. Just wait there. And I said, terrific. So there's the the examination table and the stirrups and everybody. And after about 15 minutes, I lay back to to kill some time. And I look up and there is a picture that all the women see for their gynecological examination. It's of Pierce Brosnan. Oh, my gosh. What What a great story. What a great story. Well, listen, it's uh, it's a joy to talk to you, Murphy. You are such yeah. a such a bright light, and I can't thank you enough for doing this and joining us here on Great Minds. Love it. Thanks, Matt. Well, stay in touch, pal. I'll do my best. Right. Bye-bye now. Bye. Sweetheart, a miss. Sugar to kiss.